today we're going to uh, uh, start a new series. It's Upside Down Kingdom, so stand on your head if you can. See that? No? <laughs> Some people are like, eh. All right, so we're going to be starting this new series, and, and essentially what we want to do is we want to ask uh, this question, what uh, is the kingdom of heaven? See, uh, the Israelites, they were expecting a Messiah to come. They were expecting a Messiah to come and to establish this kingdom. Uh, and they were wanting it to be a political kingdom that set them free from the reign of the Romans. But yet, uh, what we see happen instead in their lives is Jesus come and not establish a political kingdom. I mean, political kingdoms, no matter what, do not change the hearts of men. And God knew that, and so he sent Jesus, and he wanted to change their hearts. And, and because uh, it wasn't going to work as a political, uh, he decided to send it as this kingdom of heaven. And there's so much we could say about the kingdom of heaven uh, or the kingdom of God, as it's sometimes referred to in the New Testament. Uh, but to really understand this, I want us to look uh, at what Jesus has to say about it. Uh, Jesus, in uh, what's called the Sermon on the Mount, will spend uh, two or three chapters talking about the ethics of this kingdom. And so we want to kind of study that over the next couple of weeks. Uh, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 5 today, and so if you have your Bibles, uh, I invite you to, to turn there. Uh, we're going to start here and, and kind of go uh, as we go. And so uh, here is uh, the first two verses of chapter 5, and we will uh, kind of talk about them after we read them. Here we go. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went down on a mountainside, and here he went up on a mountainside, not down on it, but on, up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. All right, so this is kind of the setting for this Sermon on the Mount, and, and we need to kind of know context, uh, and, and even though these verses don't give us a whole lot, it gives us a lot that, that we uh, have to be aware of. All right, Matthew, uh, he kind of centers his gospel, uh, the, the, his life of Jesus, around two different aspects of Jesus. All right, he will talk about the activities that Jesus did when he was with people, so the healings uh, and the miracles that he performed, but then he also... Uh, offsets that with large sections of teachings. All right, and so Matthew chapter 5 through 7 is a large section of Jesus' teaching. It's the largest one. Uh, it's the one that's most often quoted throughout the church era. All right, and so this is uh, just that setting, this teaching of what Jesus wants his followers to know. All right, and so this is uh, what we're going to be looking at, the Sermon on the Mount. It takes place on a mountainside. Uh, that's why it's called this. And like I said, it was often quoted throughout uh, church history because it has a lot of good stuff in it. Uh, and we're going to kind of skim over the next seven weeks over it because we could, we could spend probably a whole year uh, just on this, on what he said and what it should apply, how it should apply to us. But I'm not going to do that to you. All right, we're going to keep it short here. So, all right, so... Uh, three things that come out of these opening verses that tell us the importance of what is happening. The first is we learn about these crowds, and Matthew often uses these crowds to talk about people that are following Jesus, and, and they are uh, men and women who have been affected by Jesus. Jesus has been showing them love. He's been healing their elements. Uh, he's been, he's been uh, going around and teaching them. All right, and so they've, they've just started to gravitate towards him. And so crowds in Matthew are important, and it kind of tells us who Jesus is talking to. All right, he's, not just, he's not talking to everybody in the world. 
He's talking to those that are following him. And so when we look at things like the Sermon on the Mount, a lot of times as, as Christians, we want to apply it to everyone. But that's not what Jesus was trying to do. Right, when Jesus is talking, when he's giving these instructions, he's giving it to his disciples and to those who are willingly following him. Right, and so when we take what he says and says everybody in the world needs to obey it, we're missing the point. Right, that's not what Jesus is trying to do. When sinners act like sinners, we should not be upset about it. Instead, what we should be doing is going out and making disciples and then teaching them everything that Jesus commanded, which includes all these things that we find in the Sermon on the Mount. That's how we change people. All right, we can't force them to live like us until they accept Jesus and follow him as well. All right, so that's something important that we have to recognize in this. All right, this is for us as Christians. How are we to live in this world? All right, the second thing that we see is this mountain, okay? Um, Matthew uses mountains, and he does this for various reasons. One of the main reasons he uses mountains throughout his gospel is because he's trying to communicate uh, to his readers that Jesus was the next Moses. All right, Moses was this guy in Israel's history who, who brought the Israelites out of Egypt and gave them the law. Right, he was the, great, the first great leader that they had, and everyone was looking for this next Moses. And so Matthew, he uses mountains because in Moses' life, mountains were important as well. Right, what was the most important mountain in Moses' life? Mount Sinai. All right, we know that, right? All right that's where God gave the law. It's where he saw the burning bush. Uh, he, Matt, uh, uh, the last thing we see of Moses' life is on Mount Nebo as he's looking out into the promised land. So mountains were important in, in Moses' life. And so Jesus, or in Matthew, as he's writing about Jesus, will talk about mountains. And anytime we come to a mountain, it's important. All right, we have the Sermon on the Mount. This is important. All right, Jesus uh, has three of his disciples with him on a mountain when he is transfigured. Right, it was an important event. The very last scene of Jesus' life is on a mountain in Galilee where he tells them the Great Commission, go and make disciples of all the nations. Right, it happens on a mountain. So when there's a mountain in the book of Matthew, it means we need to pay attention. Right, so when we see Jesus goes on a mountain, instantly in our mind we should think, okay, let's, let's, this is important, we need to listen to it. Right, the second thing is, is that he, or the third thing that happens is that he sits down. Now, this is a, a customary thing that I think we should bring back, okay? Basically, uh, sitting down meant that you were exercising authority. And so a, a king, he had a throne, right? And he sat down and everybody in his presence stood up. For teachers, they would sit and their students would stand. So imagine coming to church and I was sitting down and you guys were standing the entire sermon. Yeah, let's bring it back. No? No? Okay. Yeah, so, so this is showing the fact that, that Matthew says Jesus sits down shows us that, again, what Jesus is about to say is, is authoritative. All right? He's exercising authority. It's important, and we need to pay attention. So we kind of understand the importance of the Sermon on the Mount right now, right? All right, we see from Matthew, he's trying to communicate to his readers that this is something that should change your life. All right, so let's read it, and let's not read the first 10 verses of it. 
All right, we'll come back to it because I think in verses 13 through 16, uh, we see kind of uh, the importance of what Jesus is trying to communicate in those first 10 verses. So uh, verse 13, uh, Jesus uses one of two uh, Jewish concepts uh, to tell his disciples how they should live. And so this is, uh, Roger actually read it. So uh, he said, verse 13, you are the salt of the earth. But if salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. So once he, he's, he uh, goes through these uh, Beatitudes that we'll come back to, uh, and then he talks about this idea of salt. And this was a, a pretty typical idea that was used in Jewish teachings at this time. All right, salt. Uh, is important, and we understand the importance a little bit. All right, we use salt for food, right? All right, my wife, she's not really a salt person. She puts salt on two things: green beans and broccoli. All right, my opinion is broccoli doesn't need it; it tastes good without it. All right, but she puts it on it. Me, I like salt on a lot of stuff, like eggs. All right, my wife doesn't put it on eggs. Have you ever tasted eggs that were not salted? They're not very good, in my opinion. I don't know about you, but I don't like them. All right, and so I put salt on stuff, and, and sometimes she says I put too much salt, and, and whatever. We, we have, my kids don't like salt either, so it's one of those things. So, all right, so, but we understand this salt, right? When we Just a little bit of salt makes something taste excellent for whatever reason. It brings out the rich, vibrant flavor of whatever it is that we put it on. And this, the Israelites in the first century, they would have used salt in that way as well, you know, to give it flavor. And so when Jesus is saying, you are the salt of the earth, that's one of the things that he's saying. He's saying that you make the world taste better. The other thing that they used salt for in that time period was to preserve things. We uh, we have refrigerators, right? We go to the grocery store. That it's in a refrigerator there. When we buy our meat, we take the meat, we put it in our refrigerator at home, and then we use it whenever. And then when we have leftovers, what do we do with it? Go back in our refrigerator. Hopefully you don't throw it away. Hopefully you eat it later. All right? All right put it back in the refrigerator. We have some ways to preserve uh, our foods. Now, in their day, they didn't have that. Right? They didn't have electricity, they didn't have a refrigerator, so in order to preserve meat, especially in a hot land, they had to do one of two things. They either had to dry it out, make like beef jerky out of it, or they had to salt it uh, to make sure that the bacteria uh, didn't, didn't make you sick as you were eating it. All right? And so this idea of salt uh, that Jesus is talking about, he's not just talking about making things taste better, but also preserving it, all right? making it good for you. And so when he looks at his disciples and he tells them, you guys are the salt of the earth, he is saying, you guys make it more palatable and you preserve it. Imagine the world without Christians in it. Now, there's a lot of people in this world that say, oh yeah, if there weren't Christians, life would be so much better, but would it? I mean, let's just think, not just now, but historically, right? Do you know that it was the Christians that in Europe sponsored the arts, the Renaissance, everything that happened there, Leonardo, Michelangelo, a lot of these famous uh, artists that we know of, they were sponsored by churches. 
Some of the great musicians that progressed music in the world, they were sponsored by churches. Bach is a very good example. Right, most of what he wrote that are beautiful, that we listen to, and we're like, oh, that's awesome. Right, that was for churches, for a church service. Imagine having Bach play the piano every, every week, all right, or the organ. Right, it would be amazing. Right? On top of that, the sciences were also promoted by Christians, by churches. And while they didn't always like the results that the scientists came up with, it was still sponsored by the churches, not to mention hospitals. The modern hospitals were sponsored by churches originally. And so many of the various things that are good in our society originated with Christians wanting to make the world a better place. Imagine if Christianity wasn't around. See, when Jesus says we are the salts of the earth, he is talking about us making the world around us a better place. And that leaves us this question. Do we? Do we in our individual lives, do I, as I'm living my life, make the world around me better? That's a question I think we all have to ask. If I go around my life and I make everything worse, am I being salt to this earth? And so you need to examine your life and ask this question, man, am I fulfilling this? Because Jesus warns us here. He says that if you are not salt, if you lose your saltiness, what use do you have? Now, we have salt that's kind of pure salt. It doesn't really lose its saltiness. But in that day, when they got their salt from the shores of the Dead Sea, if it was left for too long, it oftentimes would lose its saltiness because it was impure. Right? It wasn't straight-up salt like we know it. All right? And so he is literally talking about something that happened in their days. And when you got something that was unsalty, you just threw it, it, was, you just threw it out. So if you are not making your world a better place, you're useless. Now Jesus uses a second idea in these verses. In verses 14 through 16, he says, You are the light of the world. A, a city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. He says you are a light. Right, and we, we have lots of lights, right? We have lights in this room. The reason why you can see is because we have stage lights and we have uh, house lights and we have lights coming in from the, from the windows, from the sun, which doesn't seem to be shining very brightly today. Right? We have lights, but in a world that did not have electricity, light was much more valuable. It was something that, that oftentimes I don't think we appreciate as much until the electricity goes out. You know, and, and so they needed light. And so when Jesus talks about you being a light of the world, he's talking about this idea that in a very dark room, you can pick out lights, even if it's tiny. Right? It's distinctive. You cannot hide it. And so he uses a couple of illustrations. He says a city on a hill. You know, if you're walking by and you see a hit city that's built on top of a hillside, you cannot miss it, can you? 
It's a lot easier to miss the one that's in the valley because you can't see it behind everything, but one that's built on a hill, it is not easily missed. It says a lamp, you don't light a lamp and then hide it. You know, we want to put a light on and then put a bowl around it. That doesn't make much sense. That's not the purpose of light. Light is to be seen. And what Jesus is saying to his disciples is your lives are lights in this dark place. Your life is meant to be distinctive, to be different, to be noticed. Those that say that I can be a Christian in my home, they're missing the point. That's not distinctiveness. If you're a secret Christian, you are useless to God. Right? You are to be lights in this world. And Jesus, I think my children are like in the back. Hi. Okay. All right. You are to be lights in this world, to be distinctive. And, and I think what Jesus gets from these salts and this light is this idea that you are to be distinctive. And so we have to ask that question, is my life distinctive, different? Do people walk around, they see that I live in a different way? And if the answer to that is no, then why not? Why are you not living as salt in this earth? Why are you not living as the light of the world? What is holding you back from doing these things? Another question we've got to ask is, okay, how, how is my life different? How is my life distinctive? And that's where I think Jesus, uh, the reason why we skip the Beatitudes is because I think Jesus kind of sums up what he's talking about with this salt and light picture. Uh, and so we want to go back and we want to read these and we want to see how the kingdom of heaven is different than the world's. And so here's, here's what he says in verse 3. He says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Uh, this idea of being poor in spirit is, is an idea of, of, of being humble, okay? Uh, it's, it's the idea of being poor was that you had nobody who stood in front of you and, and championed your cause. All right? And so when you are poor, oftentimes in the Old Testament, uh, that meant that you were afflicted. Right, that you, you weren't getting justice. And the person that stood for you in those moments in the Old Testament was God himself. And so he says, listen, if you are poor in the spirits, then you get the kingdom of heaven. And we already see the difference between the kingdoms of the earth and the kingdoms of heaven, right? The kingdoms of the earth, when we want people to come into our nation, we want the brightest and the best, right? We don't want the lowlifes. They don't need to come here is often what we say. But the kingdom of heaven is different because in the kingdom of heaven, the people that get to come in, they are the poor. They are the humble. Those who, who have no one to champion their cause. That's who the kingdom of heaven is for. He continues, he says, blessed are those who mourn, for they'll be comforted. This idea of mourning in the New Testament was this idea of lamenting, oftentimes, because someone you loved passed away. But more than that, it was mourning over recognizing the, the atrocities of the world. Recognizing that there is a lack of justice. And these people mourn because they know that God has a standard and that standard is not being met. 
And Jesus says, those who mourn in this way, they will find comfort. This idea of comfort throughout the Bible is the idea of salvation. Those who mourn because God's justice is not being received in this world, they are the ones that receive salvation. He continues in the next verse by saying, Blessed are are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. In our world, in our society, we love people that use their clouts to get what they want. We praise those who are rich and that are able to go out and say, we need to do this, this, and this. I want it my way. And we're grateful that they can stand on themselves. But the kingdom of heaven is different. It's not those who rely on themselves, but it's the meek, those who rely on God that inherit the earth. Oftentimes we want to use our power and our influence to gain the whole world, but it's not that that wins it. Those that rely on God, they are the ones that get the earth. Do we see the difference between the old kingdom and the kingdom of heaven? And the reason why we titled this series The Upside-Down Kingdom is because what Jesus says here is so backwards from what we think as normal. We think things as normal in our society, in our world, and, and, and that's not how the kingdom of heaven is. Jesus continues by saying, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Hunger and thirst reflect the same idea. These are people that are desiring something that they don't have. Righteousness. And not in the sense that these men and women are not good people. All right, that they're not right and that they're, not, and that they're just big, big sinners. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about people that look at the world and they see justice not being done. Look at the world and they see that God's will is not being fulfilled. And they hunger and they thirst for God's will to be done on earth. And it's these men and women that will be satisfied. These first four Beatitudes, they all have something in common. They all talk about men and women of God who are lacking something, that are suffering because they are wanting God to do something. There are men and women of God who don't rely on themselves, but instead rely completely on God. Vastly different. I mean, a lot of times in our society, we want you to rely on yourself. You do it. You control your own destiny. But that's not what the kingdom of heaven is about. The kingdom of heaven is about the poor in spirit, the meek, those who hunger and thirst for God's will to be done on earth, those who rely not on themselves but on God. That is who the kingdom is for. The next four Beatitudes, they kind of talk about a different aspect. The next one uh, in verse 7, I think, says, Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the merciful. Those who go out and act in mercy towards those who have harmed them. Mercy is a, a, a defining characteristic of Christianity throughout the New Testament. Is something that you are expected to give because God has shown you mercy himself. God has looked at your sins and said you do not have to be punished for it. 
It's the mercy of God that we can have salvation in the first place. And God says, the way you've been shown mercy, that is how you are to show mercy towards other people. No matter what they've done to you. No matter how much they've hurt you in their past. Are you merciful? These four characteristics in these next verses, they're talking about men not and women, not that are suffering, but men and women that are actually participating and bringing about the kingdom of heaven on earth. And the first characteristics of those people are that they are merciful towards others. He says this in the next verse. He says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. And this idea of pure in heart is the idea that your actions reflect your inside. In Jesus' day, this was a big issue. When he looks at the Pharisees, he calls them whitewashed tombs. Why does he call them that? It's easy. Because when you look at a whitewashed tomb, it looks pretty, but what's inside it? Death. Decay. And Jesus looks at the Pharisees and says, you guys are just like that because inside you are nasty. But you look good on the outside. That's the opposite of being pure in heart. Pure in heart, your outside reflects what's really going on inside you. And Jesus says when your inside reflects your outside, when your outside reflects your inside, that is what is good in the kingdom of God. And those people, they will see God. The next one is blessed are the peacemakers. For they will be called the children of God. Peace is such an abnormal word in our lives. In the ancient world, the the word literally in Greek means the absence of war, okay? Not war. I mean, this is how abnormal this is, okay? This is not something that was a part of their lives. Their lives was filled with war, and our lives, it's filled with war, I mean, our country has been in an armed conflict since 2001, somewhere, 16 straight years. I mean, this is, since World War II, we've been in more armed conflicts than we've not been in. And that's the the history of, of humanity. We fight each other. Throughout the ancient world, it was just normal for them to be at war, except for this one people group that valued peace, the Israelites. They're the only ones of the ancient world that valued peace over war because they knew that God brings peace. And as Christians, as followers of Jesus, we need to be peacemakers, not just in our lives and the people we influence, but in our world as well. Because God, Jesus says that those who are peacemakers in the world, they are called what? The children of God. Peacemakers. Do we bring peace? The last one that he says in verse 10 is, Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This idea of of righteousness throughout Matthew is the idea of fulfilling God's will on earth. 
Right, Jesus, when he gets baptized by John the Baptist, John says, no, I can't baptize you. And Jesus says, do it to fulfill righteousness. Right, and so, so it's this idea of doing God's will on earth. And Jesus says, blessed are those who are persecuted for doing righteousness, for fulfilling God's will in their lives in the earth, to bring about this kingdom of heaven. Because this kingdom that we are called to it is different than the kingdoms of the earth. And when we are doing our job to bring the kingdom of heaven about, that honestly will look strange to everyone around us. And we're going to be ridiculed, and we're going to be persecuted. And so if we are being persecuted and ridiculed because we are doing what God wants us to do, that is what is blessed. These four attributes are things that we have to have in our lives. They are the things that make us the salt of the earth and the light of the world. We have to be merciful. We have to be peacemakers. We have to be pure in heart. We have to do righteousness, God's will in this earth. The final thing that Jesus says in verse 11 and 12 is this, Blessed are you when people uh, insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And Jesus wraps up this entire section and, and connects it to the salt and light with this idea that, that following his will hurts. See, being a Christian, following God's will in our lives, doing this thing that makes the upside-down kingdom a, a reality it's not easy. It's not easy being different. It's not easy being distinctive in a world that all you, all wants to do is conform to each other. But we are called for more. And so when you look at your life this morning, I want you to ask yourself these questions very honestly. Am I being distinctive? Am I one of these men and women who are suffering because I see justice denied in this world? Am I one of these men and women who are being merciful and having peace and, 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 and doing everything that I can to be pure in heart? Is this, these beatitudes, these things that Jesus says are blessed or, or that should be congratulated, are they things that I'm living out in my life? Because if they are not, then what makes you different than the world? We are called to be salt and light. Things that make the world a better place. And if we're not making the world a better place and we're just conforming to it, then we are not living in this upside-down kingdom. And we need to change. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we're grateful for Jesus and his words of encouragement, his words of challenge that talk about uh, this kingdom that is meant to, to make a difference in this world. Father, as I examine my life, I know that there's areas that I'm not always being sold and I'm not always being liked. And when those moments come in my lives, I pray, God, that, that I can be a reflection of you. 
that I can be challenged to, to change the way I'm living so that I can make the world around me better. Help me, Father, to, to promote this upside-down kingdom in the way I act, in the way I speak, in the way I do things. Help me to be merciful. Help me to be a peacemaker. Help me to be uh, bringing about your righteousness in this world. Father, help us as, as followers of you to grasp this understanding that we are to be distinct, that we are to be different. Help us when we struggle not to be. I see things in your name. Amen.